As we prepare to hear the word of God, I invite you now to note the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is printed in the bulletin, and we will read responsively. What benefit do we receive from the resurrection of Christ? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death that he might make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us through his death. Second, we too are now raised by his power to a new life. Third, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Let us ask the Lord's reading upon his holy word. Our Father, we rejoice in the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in his name we ask again for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with us and to lead us into all truth in accordance with your inspired word of Scripture. And we pray that the Spirit's power would illumine our minds and open our hearts. We pray, our Father, that in your goodness and mercy, you would convict us and convert us more deeply and consecrate us more fully so that we might more faithfully follow the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15. The reading begins at verse 42. This is the Word of God. It is written. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor. To Jesus Christ be all praise and glory. Amen. The four biblical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very much concerned with the historical reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Don't let anyone fool you with the nonsense about the gospels having been written so far after the time of Jesus that they cannot be considered historically reliable or credible. That is balderdash. The Gospel of Mark was written in the 60s. Mark was the penman of the Apostle Peter, and so Mark was recounting Peter's eyewitness experience. Mark himself was likely an eyewitness to much of what he wrote. I began reading at the conclusion of chapter 15, the account of Jesus' burial, because in that passage there are a number of historical details regarding Jesus' death which are significant in terms of the historical reality of his resurrection. First of all, Mark specifically, let's give our attention to the word of God. First of all, Mark specifically names Joseph of Arimathea one of the members of the Jewish council, the high court called the Sanhedrin. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Joseph. He went to the Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was very well known. He was a prominent man, well known throughout the Jewish community as well as Roman officialdom in Jerusalem. By referring specifically to Joseph of Arimathea, Mark is making the point that Jesus' disciples did not handle the burial or make arrangements for the burial in some secret way. Mark is making the point that Joseph of Arimathea, a very prominent, very well-known man, took care of Jesus' burial, and the point is is that Jesus' place of burial could be specifically identified and confirmed. Now that's a historical data point which leads to the next historical detail. When Joseph went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body, Pilate was surprised that Jesus had already died because sometimes criminals lived much longer while hanging on a cross. Pilate summoned the Roman centurion, the officer who had been in charge of the soldiers who had crucified Jesus. And this centurion confirmed to Pilate that yes, indeed, Jesus was in fact dead. And believe me, the Roman soldiers knew exactly what they were doing. They were very, very good at killing people. Crucified, dead, and buried. Historical fact. Mark also tells us that when Joseph of Arimathea laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So Mark names three more people, and the other Gospels indicate that there were others as well who saw where the body of Jesus was laid. There was no question that Jesus was dead, 
There was no mistake about where Jesus' body had been laid. Now, I say this because there have always been these attempts to explain away the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Theories which suggest that Jesus didn't really die or that his disciples stole the body or that grave robbers stole the body or that the women in their confusion went to the wrong tomb. None of those theories will stand up to rational investigation. I'm not gonna dwell on that point this morning, but I, what I want you to see is this, that the biblical gospels present the resurrection of Jesus in the context of the historical reality of Jesus' death. The biblical gospels show us the resurrection of Jesus in the historical context of Jesus' death. Just as his death was an historical event, so his resurrection from the dead was an historical event. And here's another historical detail. In each of the four gospels, the first witnesses of the resurrection are women, and they are the first to proclaim the resurrection to the apostles. When the Sabbath was passed, Saturday afternoon, 6 p.m., Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, let us remember, Sunday is the first day of the week, not the weekend. On the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And the other gospels likewise tell us that the women were the first to hear the good news of Jesus' resurrection and the first to proclaim it to the apostles. Now, here's the significance of that. In antiquity, a woman's testimony didn't count for much. In fact, a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. So Mark, as well as Matthew, Luke, and John, would have never made this up and would have never included it in the record unless it were historically accurate, the truth, the way it really happened. It's just another little detail showing the historical reliability and credibility of the New Testament gospel account. Notice also the conversation among the women as they went to the tomb. They were saying, who will roll away the stone for us? Well, perhaps they were expressing some frustration over the fact that none of the apostles or the other male disciples were willing to risk being seen at the tomb. The presence of the women at the tomb somewhat shamed the male disciples. Another detail which would have never been made up and been made public by the apostles if it were not true. So the huge stone was going to be a problem. Maybe they thought maybe someone else would be in the area, maybe a man tending another tomb would be able to help them. The women's question, who will roll away the stone for us, is just another detail showing the real predicament of the real situation. When they got there, 
The stone had already been rolled away. They entered the tomb. Now, I want to pause and have you think about this for a moment. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke also tell us that the women went into the tomb. The Gospel of John tells us that later, Peter and John went into the tomb. And the fact that Jesus' followers went into the tomb is important. The apostle John tells us that when he, John, went into the tomb and saw only the grave linens lying neatly in their place, quote, he saw and believed. Now, here's the point. The stone was rolled away by the angel, not so that Jesus could get out of the tomb, but so that his followers, his witnesses, could get into the tomb and see for themselves that Jesus was not there but they did see something. The women saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, an angel appearing visibly as a young man. And they were alarmed and they were afraid and who wouldn't be? But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. More literally, he was raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The angel's message was really remarkably simple, straightforward. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't mysterious like a riddle. It wasn't hard to understand. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not here. He was raised. See the place where they laid him. Now, the angel's simple message helps us see the simple connection. He was crucified. He was raised. Jesus' resurrection was just as real as his crucifixion. Now, I've been pointing out these little historical details so that you who believe in Christ will be reminded today that the Christian faith is rooted in historical reality. If you are a believer in Christ, let me encourage you today by simply reminding you that you don't believe in something that's just made up out of thin air. The biblical Christian faith is not the product of human religious imagination or spiritual fantasy or wishful thinking. The Christian gospel is not myth. The apostles, 
within their own lifetime, proclaimed and wrote about the historical reality of Jesus' death and his bodily resurrection from the tomb. And they themselves suffered persecution unto death for proclaiming the gospel. I say this as a word of encouragement to believers. Biblical Christian faith is rooted in reality. And I say this also for those of you here today who do not believe the gospel, who have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I am glad that you are here and you are always welcome. And I want you to know that I take your unbelief seriously enough to ask you, have you ever seriously considered the historical realities of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Most people who don't believe the Bible have, in fact, never really read very much of it. So let me ask you, because I take you seriously, is your belief system, whatever it is, and everybody has one, is your belief system rooted in reality? Or is it simply a matter of your opinion? That's the question. And I encourage you to take the biblical Christian faith as seriously as I take your unbelief today. Have you seriously considered what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection? That's the issue, and the issue is an eternal one. For all of us, Easter is not only about an historical reality, it is about an eternal reality, eternal life or eternal death. Christian faith is not only a matter of knowing about Jesus Christ, it is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, about knowing Christ, knowing Him and the power of His resurrection here and now. Because Jesus Christ, risen from the dead at the right hand of God the Father Almighty by the power of the Holy Spirit, still reveals Himself, still speaks His Word through Scripture. He still calls you and me to trust him, to surrender our lives to him, and to follow him. He still gives the promise that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And his resurrection guarantees that his promise will not fail. Here's why. Jesus was sinless. He wasn't under the curse of Death, as are you and I. But Jesus took my sins upon himself. My sins were laid on him, charged to his account. And Jesus willingly claimed my sins as his own. And he himself bore my sins in his body on the tree. And my sins were enough to kill him and condemn him under the righteous wrath of God the Father 
Almighty. Yes, my sins were enough to kill him and to condemn him under the righteous wrath of God the Father Almighty, which I deserved. And when I'm confronted with the reality of my sin and the sinfulness of my sin, I can turn to verses such as 1 Corinthians 15, 3, which says, Christ died for our sins. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus himself said about himself, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And 1 Peter 3, 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. You may be familiar with these and other verses about Jesus' substitutionary death for sinners, but here's the question. How do I know? How do you and I know that Jesus did not die in vain? How do we know that? How do I know? How can I be sure that Jesus' death on the cross was not a futile effort, a vain attempt to save me? How can I be sure that his death paid the price in full, satisfied the justice of God, appeased the wrath of God, atoned for all my sins. How can I be sure that Jesus Christ crucified is God's way of saving sinners? That's the question. How can I be sure that Jesus Christ crucified is God's way of saving sinners? What does the Bible say? The Bible says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts chapter 2, 24. Why was it not possible for Jesus to be held by death? Because by his death, he did away with the power of sin and death over himself and over all who look to him for their salvation. By his death, he paid the price for all the sins laid on him and God the Father accepted Jesus' death as the sacrificial payment for sins and therefore, says the scripture, God raised him up. You see, beloved, the resurrection of Jesus proves that his death satisfied the justice of God, appeased the wrath of God, and made peace with God for all who trust in him. God vindicated his son by raising him up. The resurrection of Jesus proves that his sinless life was not a waste. And his death on the cross was not a tragedy. The resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus neither lived nor died in vain, but by his life and by his death, he accomplished exactly what he intended to do, save sinners. And therefore, 
You can have unshakable confidence in the promise of the forgiveness of all your sins and peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ who was, quote, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, the scripture says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And therefore, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why? Because only Jesus Christ has died a substitutionary death under the wrath and curse of God which you and I deserve. Only Jesus Christ has been raised from death free from that curse to live forevermore as the Savior of sinners. Only Jesus Christ freely offers to you a righteousness, a right standing with God, which does not depend upon you but depends on him, received as a gift through faith. And therefore, only through faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, do you and I have the assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins, peace with God by the blood of his cross, and the hope of glory in life everlasting. It's all rooted in history. It's all rooted in history, but it's all for the sake of eternity. Jesus did not live and die in vain, and neither will you if you are in union with him through faith. God raised him up, and God will raise you up if you are in Christ Jesus and he is in you. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior, and we pray that your Spirit will embed your Word deeply into our hearts and water it so that it might grow and bear much fruit for your glory. Help us to live more faithfully as the disciples of the risen Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world as we say together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.